0: Is it really possible to solve homelessness altogether? We'll be talking with Larry James, CEO of City Square, about just that on Good God coming up. Welcome to Good God. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome. My good friend and colleague, Larry James. To good God. Thanks, George. Good to be here. Thank you. Larry uh, is the CEO of City Square, uh, a a, a community benevolence ministry for transformation in our our town that addresses uh, remarkable um, issues of poverty and works with our neighbors in in beautiful ways and uh, really a, a fabulous organization. Larry is a a United Methodist now and a a clergy person. But, Larry, that's really not the whole story that uh, that people would want to know. So, I'd love for you to say a few words about your own journey as uh, coming from the Church of Christ and being a pastor and how you got to where
1: you are today. Yeah, that's kind of laughable at some points, George, but it's interesting, I suppose. Uh, I grew up in a Church of Christ family uh, in Richardson, Texas. Mm -hmm when it was a very small little village north of the city. Uh, My folks were, as was the congregation we attended, a loving, benevolent, wonderful place. Uh, However, my folks never really drank the Kool-Aid of Mm -hmm. right-wing, conservative, legalistic, patternistic, Campbellite (laughs) theology. Uh, But we were very involved in the church and I had a football scholarship at Tulane University and Harding College, rather disparate. Yes, a little Uh, different, the two of those schools. Uh, I followed the woman I married to Harding Uh and never had any intention whatsoever of being in ministry as a a kid. As a matter of fact, that was the furthest thing from my mind, frankly. And even now, people who knew me then are amazed that I'm a pastor. Yes. Um, Anyway. but I fell under the influence of some really godly people at Harding, and um, was called to the the uh, homiletics professor's office out of class one day, and I, I was scared to death because I thought Dr. Jones had, had found out I was dipping snuff. <laughs> That's how legalistic it was. But anyway, he he was asking me he asked me to do his office. He said, "You you should consider full time ministry," mm-hmm. and I never considered it before then really, but I. I had a call on my life and uh, changed my major and finished there with a undergraduate degree in religion with a minor in Biblical languages.
0: You know, just to stop you for a yeah. moment, I, I think it's important every once in a while to keep reaffirming something you and I both know to be true, and that is people who sense a call to ministry usually have someone yeah. that they yeah. have admired who comes to them and deliberately singles them out and says, you know, I don't know whether you feel called to ministry or not, but I see it in you and I think you should consider it.
1: Well, and that's right. And Mm -hmm. Dr. Jones and I are still in contact. Mm -hmm. He's been to Dallas a couple of times since I left there. But yeah, you're right. I think that's right. Uh, The advice and the the reflection Mm -hmm. of people who mean something to you is very important in that regard. Uh, Finished there. Went to Memphis for a year to do a graduate degree in the history of Christian thought. uh, Study with Dr. Harold Hazelup, who later became the president of David Lipscomb College. Mm -hmm. Really brilliant guy. Uh, We were there three and a half years after Dr. King was murdered. And Memphis was still really a quiver, and Mm -hmm. it was an incredible experience to be there at that time. Moved then to Shreveport, Louisiana, where we served for two years and 45 minutes. And the 45 minutes was- 45 minutes. And one of the deacons of the church asked me in his rather palatial, as palatial as Freeport could be, I guess, office, uh, if, if I thought he was going to hell because he didn't like black folks, except he used the N-word uh-huh. rather uh, bitterly. And I said to him, I said, Well, sir, um, you should really consider that question because I can assure you of one thing. God cares more about how you answer that question then he cares about what kind of music you use on Sunday.
2: Whoa.
1: So that was a 45 minutes. Yes, I that, get it. Yeah. I was gone. So we moved to New Orleans
2: uh-huh.
1: and uh, went to finished at uh, New Orleans Baptist Seminary, as a matter of fact. Uh-huh. Had a job with a downtown church uh, three blocks off Canal Street. Okay. Really had two congregations. Right. Um, the Sunday crowd from Tennessee and Texas transplants to New Orleans, yeah. working in different industries, and the Monday to Saturday church, hmm. which was populated by fortune tellers, and pimps, and prostitutes, and drug addicts and schizophrenics. And.
0: So all the way back then, you were doing this work. <laughs> well,
1: it was, it was just on me. I yes. mean, it was just right. everywhere I would go, it would be there. And uh, then, surprisingly, I uh, got a call in 1980 to come back to the home church, right. where I served as pastor for 14 years. But all during that time, I, when I came back to Richardson, I had an internal goal that I didn't share with many people. One was to make the church thoroughly and completely ecumenical. Wow. And to turn outward toward the community completely. Wow. And so for 14 years we worked that. And uh, it was very disruptive, as you might imagine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the church grew mm-hmm. because every group who left, there'd be two who would join. And it was a pretty interesting time.
0: Let me stop you there again and say, you know, this, this is something I think for the people who are uh, listening and watching, uh, people don't understand always that the Church of Christ is not just the Church of Christ; these are churches of Christ. Correct. Correct. So, Therefore, sometimes people paint with a broad brush, right? And they yeah. do it with Baptists too. Sure. Uh, obviously, sure. Uh, but each Church of Christ gets to determine its own life and mission, and and how it's going to, you know, develop its its work, and so. Uh, yours was though um, more <laughs> well more different than any church of christ i had yeah. known yeah. richardson east uh, when i first um, heard of you uh, was during the aids crisis uh, yeah. in in the uh, early 90s and you were uh, you were talking about compassion to um, to people with AIDS, and this was at a time when the fear was high, and when, you know, Christians were uh, claiming that AIDS was God's judgment on uh, gay behavior and those sorts of things, and and here was a compassionate word coming from uh, Richardson in the Church of Christ. And then I, and then you declared the church a nuclear free zone, <laughs> which was again, you know, sort of a, my goodness, uh, what's going on in Richardson uh, for a lot of us? Yeah. So well, that was, that was an extraordinary uh, gesture of, uh, yeah. of how you wanted to position yeah. how the gospel was represented yeah. in your church.
1: Yeah. Proclamation uh, takes many forms. Yes. And it's best when it's intentional, I believe, Mm -hmm. and when it's rooted in a theological foundation that's uh, uh, steady and sure. Mm -hmm. And the compassion of God and the desire to include Mm -hmm. all God's children is powerful. And uh, it can be disruptive, but I think we, you know, pastoral responsibility involves speaking the truth with love Sometimes the power, sometimes the confusion. Yes. Um, but uh, anyway, that's what we did.
0: But I, I do think it's interesting that um, what I know of the Church of Christ, uh, of course, Church of Christ and Baptists have common roots, yeah. and uh, Church of Christ having broken off from Baptists uh, during the Campbellite years and all, but uh, both of them have a kind of restorationist yep. uh, idea of restoring the New Testament church. Right. right. And, and, and reading the New Testament in a way that says, this is that, we are they, uh, and it, there's an immediacy about how we read uh, the Bible as disciples of Jesus. Right. Uh, but both Baptists and Church of Christ have often. Um, departed in their actual practice from what we say, and that is that we are a grace-filled community saved by grace and that this is God's work in our life and that it's not what we do. And yet then there, there has come over time so often this um, this way of legalistically defining who's in and who's out, not so much by grace, but by behavior,
1: yeah. right? So the devil is in the details, yeah. literally. Right. And the test of grace is uh, how far, uh, how broadly one uh, feels free to dispense it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you move toward that place that is unlimited mm-hmm. and uh, the horizon is expansive, uh, you're in for a great ride, but also some trouble. Yes, right. I used to tell the church in Richardson that I was a closet Wesleyan. Uh ah. And that they would just have to deal with that. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And I, I really all did. They understood what that meant? Probably not. So <laughs> some did, but uh, that there's always been. Well, not always, but there's been for a long time in my soul this recognition of you know, this expansive grace of God that begins literally at birth yes. and proceeds all the way to the end, mm-hmm. and that the goal is to strive for in grace perfection which mm-hmm. is you know really a, a noble mm-hmm. endeavor and wesley was a genius right and uh, uh, modeled reform mm-hmm. and real restoration mm-hmm. inside the anglican church by by remaining outside it. and
0: right so here you are um, now finding this wesleyan uh, emphasis uh, by being at home in the methodist church exactly and and I think that, that a big key in all of this, as you're describing in Wesley's understanding, is this, this idea of personal holiness being tied to social justice right. at the same time. That, that the, part of the problem we run into in churches is when we choose one or the other right. and not uh, hold the two uh, together. Um, and, and that you know that that seems to be where the lines of American Christianity are today. Uh, those who who prefer only their sense of personal piety and then let the marketplace and let neighborhoods and let politics take care of the rest, right. or those who are so passionate about social transformation that they neglect a real relationship to God that is personal and deep and, and
1: holy. Right.
0: Um, Holding those two things together is really a big key, isn't it?
1: It really is. And uh, it's, I, in, my, in my opinion, it's the only way to walk.
0: Right, right. Well, uh, I think that's that's part of the, the, the tension we have and the struggle that sometimes we have with our churches, and uh, especially in a highly partisan time now right. when so much of faith seems to be uh, challenged by political allegiances. right? right. So when you're concerned uh, primarily about uh, addressing matters of the poor and the community, this sounds somehow liberal and democratic and that sort of thing when, in fact, it's really about being a gospel partisan, isn't
1: it? It it really is. And the deep uh, rootedness of concerns for justice and equity, That are found in the Hebrew Scriptures, mm-hmm. that are then embodied and personified in the Christ, right. and in the community. Right. Uh, it's right. it's uh, the the battle to convince and to win people to that view is difficult at times, but there is reassurance in that platform upon which we stand. Right. And uh, you know we don't have to be angry to speak the truth. Sometimes anger is appropriate. Right. Uh, we also don't need to avoid it mm-hmm. completely to speak, to speak the truth, live it out. But, um, yeah. But I
0: think this, this, let's go back to the Church of Christ and, and, and Baptists as well and say, this, there was in the book of Acts this beautiful sense of the community, mm-hmm. the early church that had all things in common, that no one was in need, uh, and it says that they gather together to worship and to break bread and to pray and to care for one another's needs. And this is the vision that of the church.
1: Absolutely. That
0: our traditions uh, held up all these years and yet it's so hard to live it in a contemporary
1: way. Isn't yes, it? it is absolutely. And again, to re- reflect just a little bit, in, in Deuteronomy 15, uh, the law of Moses says, there shall be no poor among you if you're careful to do all the things I command you today. Mm -hmm. And that's the same paragraph in which he says also that the poor will be with you always. But that's due to the hardness of the heart of God's people. It's not due to the way things are, just by
0: nature. Okay, so I think we should pursue that a little more because it leads into your uh, movement to the formation of what became City Square and what you're doing in the community now. Let's take a break and talk about City Square.
1: Okay, good.
2: One of the challenges we face in the fight against poverty is that it is such a big, broad problem that it can be overwhelming to people. Can I really make a difference? Is that something I can really impact? And the answer is yes. My name is John Seibert. I am president and chief operating officer at City Square. The mission of City Square is to fight the causes and effects of poverty through service, advocacy and friendship. Uh, The service takes the form of about 17 different programs. Advocacy takes the form of different forms of community organizing and uh, really speaking up for neighbors in poverty. And then really the key, the secret sauce to who we are at City Square is friendship. City Square is uh, really in the people business. And so our fight against poverty is all about uh, relationships and investing in people. There are no clients, uh, there are only neighbors. And we're all in this together as friends and in community as one. And so I think when we focus more on recognizing our shared humanity, that's when poverty doesn't stand a chance.
0: Larry, we were talking about the church's responsibility to care for the poor and uh, you are CEO now of City Square, which is a human and community development corporation that is uh, into everything in, in town. I mean, it doesn't matter whether the mayor needs this for the South Dallas grow area, whether we're talking about homelessness, whether we're talking about uh, jobs training or whatever, uh, education, uh, the City Square is in the middle of it and that's a beautiful thing Uh, but how did you get into this work? How did you move from being a pastor uh, into this community and human development work?
1: That's a great question. In some ways, it's a natural evolution of the opportunity of my ministry to more fully align with what I'm concerned most about. I wasn't looking to leave the church at all. As a matter of fact, we we were on the verge of signing a contract with a development company to hmm. build more building. We were, we were actually meeting Sunday school classes in neighborhood restaurants mm-hmm. because we just had run out of room. But um, Central Dallas Food Pantry was started 30 years ago this year in 1988 by a fantastic couple, Jim and Betsy Sowell, who were very involved members of the Preston Road Church of Christ, and they started this food pantry. Without going into the details, in about six years after the beginning, things started kind of coming in and glued. Mm-hmm. wheels started coming off of the thing. And um, Jim Sal uh, was referred uh, to me by one of my good friends, uh, Randy Mayu, mm-hmm. And um, um, he, he called me and asked if I would come and be the executive director, mm-hmm. which was kind of just a shot out of the blue. Um, I struggled with that for about 90 days because it was, uh, what I was told was gonna, made me understand it was gonna be challenging. And we had so much going on at the church, things were going well, the church is growing, uh, as I mentioned to you before. Um, My wife looked across the den one night at me and she said, James, if you really believe all this stuff you've been telling us for 25 years, Just take the job. (laughs) See what happens. So another person. Yes. Yeah. So. Yes. uh, I said the next day I called Jim and I said, "Okay, let's talk about it some more. I'm I'm ready to go." And so I joined in um, the summer of 1994. Okay. Yeah.
0: So very soon after joining, I know uh, you came to understand that the Central Dallas Ministries at the time. Uh, was doing good work, but it was uh, it was doing it in uh, with a kind of approach that you realized needed a shift to happen. Yeah, tell the coffee pot story.
1: Okay, well, so let me first of all say I didn't have any idea what I was doing. <laughs> I still don't. Never had a social work class. Taught right. one once, yeah. but never had one. <laughs> never had any business training except tenth right. grade business law. Wow. All my academic life was religion, humanities. My PhD work at Tulane. Uh, was in american history yeah i mean i had no so just that's the backdrop this is a moron so i'm i bought a coffee pot Uh brand new you know church type silver plated coffee pot and took it into the center of the uh, interview room one morning early as we were we were preparing to open and i started making a pot of coffee and a long time volunteer I strolled over and very kindly put her hand on my shoulder and said larry what are you doing and i said well i'm making coffee i like coffee i bet you like coffee i would expect that people who come to talk about their problems might be put at ease with the offer of a cup of coffee and the woman said to me very kindly but matter of factly don't you know that if you make coffee these people will never leave mm-hmm. and that was an awakening for me i told my wife that night uh, clearly we were about a half a uh, bubble off plum right. and that our trajectories were going to go in quite different ways eventually and sure enough that was the case um mm-hmm. we solved it or no, we we moved into a pathway of deeper understanding uh-huh. thanks to a latina grandma wow i was interviewing three families together mm-hmm. which is no way to do social work i'm told mm-hmm. Three wonderful moms and five or six beautiful children. These women were perfect strangers to one another. Uh, They were pooling their limited English to overcome my abject stupidity when it Uh, comes to Spanish. We were not getting very far at all. And about the time I was ready to despair, Josefina Ortiz, who I had already interviewed, and she'd been to the grocery store to get her groceries, she came walking back through the interview room, and I stopped her. And I said, ma'am, could you help me? She was shocked that I would ask her for help. That's not how the equation worked right. in that building. We were the ones who helped. People like her didn't help. Right. But I didn't know the rules really because I yes. didn't know anything, right? So I asked Ms. Ortiz to help me translate this conversation. Mm-hmm. She put her groceries down and gladly came to the place of assistance. And she said, um, I'm, I'm glad to help you. And she didn't translate any interview at all. She conducted the interview. <laughs> so we were able to help these families. I'm on my knees, literally, thanking this short little grandma. from from Oak Cliff um, for her help, and not having sense enough to know what I really should have been asking from her. But she had the good sense to turn back to me when she reached the door and she said, you know, Larry, um, I could come back tomorrow if you need my help. Wow. And I said, please do. Mm -hmm. And Josefina came back tomorrow. Every day we were open virtually for nine years. Wow. And that afternoon, I had a very non-Church of Christ experience. I went up into my office on the second floor looking out a plate glass window onto the street where at that time there was a crack house across one way, a crack cocaine campground behind us, and people coming and going, uh, getting on the buses that came by the bus stop, talking on the payphone on the corner, uh, making drug deals, avoiding drug deals, attempting to survive. And God spoke to me. And I was not raised to hear God's voice, really. I I didn't expect that God would speak to Mm -hmm. me, but God spoke to me and God said, son, you are a dummy. (laughs) And I I said- That's
0: not what you want God to say to you. I said
1: audibly, yes, Lord. (laughs) I I really recognize that. And God said, I don't have time to go into all the reasons why this is true, I'll give you a couple of examples. I said, yes, Lord. And God said, you think you know what this neighborhood needs? You have no idea, you couldn't possibly know. And secondly, you regard everything for which I am ultimately responsible, God said, in material terms. And that is not how to see my wealth. Wow. And immediately I thought of Josefina, I thought of all the people on the sidewalks. Mm-hmm. And it was a clear call to me and to my heart that my job was to invest in God's treasure, mm-hmm. which was found in social capital, in the lives of people who knew what was needed, and if we were gonna be successful, we had to consult with them. And so we changed our whole culture in 45 days. And the fundamental thing we did was right underneath the line where it said on our interview forms, right underneath that line where it said, is there anything about which we could pray with you today? We added this line, could you come back as a volunteer? We need your help. Wow. So we went from 13 to 20 in a month, suburban, white, burned out, older volunteers, good church folks, sweet people. We didn't really know what they were doing either because they weren't there. We went from that group of 13 to 20 a month to about 300 volunteers a month Mm. from the community. Uh, Jim Sal once uh, commented with appreciation, James, you've got the lunatics running the asylum. And I said, mission accomplished. He said, yeah, I get it. it." And uh, the thing I heard often was, "These These these people, Larry, are gonna steal you blind yeah and i i didn't really have a response for a while but then it occurred to me exactly what i should say Uh, and i started telling people you're right in this business there is some theft Mm -hmm. but it's of two kinds it's either canned corn at the back door Mm -hmm. sold on the street to relieve a pain and to indulge again in narcotics or it's human decency stolen at the front door wow I'm going with the canned corn cartel yeah, yeah. the human dignity pirates are not coming in here anymore. Wow. And we developed a 24-7 think tank mm-hmm. of those 300 people, mm-hmm. and they told us what to do. So everything we've done has come from that voice.
0: So this is, this is the foundation of your book, The Wealth of the Poor. Right. Uh, the, the, to, to help um, people who look like us and whose experience is like us to realize uh, that there has to be another way to look at our life together in the community. Right. Uh, the disparity between uh, m- the material wealth and poverty of people in our communities is not the only way to look at that. That there's also a spiritual poverty that those with material wealth uh, have. Which which is to say that this is where, when we get involved in so-called charitable work, uh, there's a shift that has to happen in us, right, right. that 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 what happened in your organization in uh, I- employing neighbors and uh, learning to look at them as neighbors, not clients right right uh, it is is a shift that has to happen in the soul of the church in America today. I agree. Um, that we are still segregated in so many ways, and it's not that people can't self select in terms of racial identity, say, or ethnic identities. Uh, God can sort out all, all of those things in, in different ways, but one of the things that we don't really pay enough attention to is, is this economic segregation that we right. have, social and economic segregation. We see it in the self-selection of public schools and private schools and suburbs and urban centers and all of that to where wealth allows you to insulate yourself from people who have less. and then you start looking at the world in a different way, don't you?
1: You do. And there, there, there's really hard scientific peer-reviewed research that's just coming out mm-hmm. about the cost of segregation mm-hmm. in, American, oh, in American great cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's estimated that Chicago loses over $80 billion a year because of racial and economic segregation. We need each other. Yes. You know, we need everyone to be fully gainfully employed. Mm-hmm. When when a person at the bottom does better economically, everybody does better economically. Right. Um, so there's a trickle up effect. There's a abs- not a trickle down. Tri- Supply-side economics is what Mr. Bush called it, is voodoo economics. Right. It doesn't work. Right. Uh, it, it, it exacerbates the already difficult and troublesome gap.
0: And this is the this is the the, the dilemma I think we face with you know, uh, there was a time when people like um, William Buckley and others were were committed to a kind of conservatism that was evidence-based, that was not just ideological conservatism, but said, does something have evidence that it works or not? And we had uh, a, a conservative movement that always was saying, look, we're not against social change. What we're against is uh, is experimentation with no uh, evidence that it, it can transform anyone. Right. And so let's pilot this, let's work on, let's see if this works, and then change can come. We're, we're, we're lacking those kinds of conservative minds today, it seems to me, that, that want to say, we have a real ambition here for everyone to do well. Right. Let's figure out how to do that.
1: Right. And that takes a bipartisan approach. It does. We have to help each other. We have to sharpen one another. Mm-hmm. We have to be open to real conversation about these issues. Right. But the religious right entered the picture mm-hmm. uh, after Ronald Reagan, or around the mm-hmm. time of Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. and narrowed the discussion so dramatically yes. that it created this uh, vitriol. and. Mm-hmm. The the, uh, the 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 sort of tests of orthodoxy, right? And uh, people suffer as a result.
0: And it's an orthodoxy of the left as well that, a- that, that you and I know. And, yeah. and and this this is not just about conservatism. Uh, liberals and progressives as well have a kind of uh, insulation to evidence-based approaches because of uh, the need to. Be part of a brand identification of, right. of ideas right. and the like, right. and and so you know the, the the question ultimately I think for people of faith and those of us who are working in this arena is uh, how do we match up uh, the the gospel as we understand it the the desire for human flourishing in a broad way so that everyone has a chance to experience the blessings of God and uh, the, the sense of community and well-being that uh, a neighborhood should have. And the, when you translate that then globally, you have uh, a world
1: that God intended. Absolutely.
0: So thank you, Larry, for all that you do to make that possible. Well, thank you, George. And look forward to more conversation with you. Yeah. All
1: right. Good,
0: Good
2: God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group, Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location production facilities.
0: Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more, think
2: less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons. One of the challenges we face in the fight against poverty is that it is such a big, broad problem that it can be overwhelming to people. Can I really make a difference? Is that something I can really impact? And the answer is yes. My name is John Seibert. I am president and chief operating officer at City Square. The mission of City Square is to fight the causes and effects of poverty through service, advocacy, and friendship. The service takes the form of about 17 different programs. Advocacy takes the form of different forms of community organizing and uh, really speaking up for neighbors in poverty. And then really the key, the secret sauce to who we are at City Square is friendship. City Square is uh, really in the people business. And so our fight against poverty is all about uh, relationships and investing in people. There are no clients, uh, there are only neighbors. And we're all in this together as friends and in community as one. And so I think when we focus more on recognizing our shared humanity, that's when poverty doesn't stand a chance.